Hi, this is Cliff Click, and welcome to today's podcast. Um, I'd like to mention briefly, I have a website, cliffc.org slash blog, which has you know 20 years of me doing podcasts and blogs, and my Rocket School website, uh, rocketrealtime.com, where I'm teaching classes on high-end computing performance-related topics all over the map. Okay, so today's podcast is going to be about uh, me designing a programming language. No idea what I'm doing, except I've implemented other people's programming languages all my life. And I still code a lot. I still have very strong opinions about code, um, you know, tempered by 45 plus years of coding. So I'm trying to design a language that I want to write in. So this is still very bare bones design. There's lots of fun stuff working, but lots of key important bits are missing. So it's very early stage kind of stuff. So I have some overriding, you know, high-end goals. The first being to the metal performance. You know, I am the, the language performance guy. And every abstraction I use can be peeled away down to the metal and getting code out that you would expect from a well-written C program or even machine code, right? This is a primary driver for me. I've been writing compilers for high-performance computing all my life, and I totally want to intend to give a programming model where it's obvious the code you're going to generate if you write obvious code and otherwise does all the goodnesses that you know you'd expect out of a high-end optimizing compiler you should be able to totally hit c-level performance every time you write code here but i want a modern language one with full static typing and full type inference and first class functional programming right minimalistic syntax uh, a REPL, so you can do, you know, command line style, type and go, type and go, Python feel to see what's going on. You know, obviously separate compilation and, and you know, uh, jitting code. So compilation is really typing and then the actual execution will be on the fly. And I want to bring in something that I've not seen in modern functional languages, but C totally has and totally depends on, and that's C style if def macros where you have code that is, uh, can be declared dead because it's in the wrong OS, for instance, and dead code is not typed, or another look at it, it's, it's correctly typed, even has missing variables or incorrect arguments or wrong argument counts or, or otherwise syntactic crap. If it's if deft out, it's well typed and away you go. Right, so the intent here is a modern language can be used anywhere um, C or C++ is used. Low level high performance work, OS's, device drivers, garbage collectors, stuff like that. But bring in the last 20 years of language improvements, right? I intend specifically to look at real-time constraints on the notion of time in a language. You know, people ask garbage collection. Well, you know, I intend to add Rust-style memory management. And then, um, you know, garbage collection makes life a lot easier if you don't care. So there'll probably be a garbage collection option. Um, and I certainly know how to do a very low latency, high throughput garbage collector. So, you know, that's in the works as well. Um, and then, you know, multi-cores are everywhere. So concurrency models. Um, in the last decade, I've done a lot of work on large-scale distributed parallel computing. And I've come to a coding style I really like for enabling high-performance work on a multi-core concurrency distributed computing way exact consistency models and high performance and you know precision and and redundancy and blah 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 all the goodness is I have it all at the same time because I've, I've done it okay so so that's in the works none of that's functional right now that's sort of in my head and design phase so what's the state of the implementation program strings are parsed and typed and not executed so there's no execution engine that's going to be code generation and yeah I intend to be self-hosting it someday 
Although I say they're not executed, actually the typer does aggressive partial evaluation. So many expressions will, in fact, evaluate down to some constant value. Um, and then again, anything that's dead doesn't have to type, specifically to support C, C++, if def, OS level hacking stuff. The language is really simple, and uh, you know it's it's like all good modern language design. It's a small collection of completely orthogonal thoughts, right? It's uh, you know first class functions. It's very C-like. It has standard operators with a very similar list of types. There's ints and floats, and sized of ints is of you know one bit byte and up to sixty-four. Um, you know one twenty-eight can be added sort of easily. You know floats, structures, functions, tuples arrays, um, lexical scoping, operator precedence, and so on. Statements can be separated by uh, well, by semicolon, like normal, or by a new line, like in Python, if that's a valid statement in. Um, and then the last semicolon in any grouping is optional. There's no keywords in language, so no keywords, no function or fun or def or var, no enum or case or continue. Uh, see style comments with slash slash and slash star. So I say it's um, fully statically typed with full type inference. So you don't have to put types in anywhere, but you may put types wherever you like, and that's a colon followed by a, a typing description. The types are names, so I say there's no keywords. The typing descriptors have built-in type names. These are just regular old names. You can extend your own types in there, and they're only valid in a type expression, which starts at a colon until the end of the type expression. To declare a variable, you simply use it. You simply, I'm sorry, you simply assign to it. Um, and the assignment has a value and can immediately be used, and you can put that uh, assignment anywhere, um, inside of any expression at any point, and the variable is not only assigned there, it's immediately available to the end of the expression. So for instance, uh, if I want to square some complicated expression, you might either repeat the expression twice, so expression times expression, or you might say temp var, you know, variable temp is equal to expression, and temp times temp. In my case, I can say temp equals expression times temp. Um, and I have to wrap the assignment because it has very low precedence. So it's actually open paren, temp equals expression, close paren times temp. And so it's assigned in the same large expression without any other ado. To do this in Java or C, you have to declare the variable ahead of time and then assign to it an expression. Here you don't. You can assign, uh, I mentioned before, type names. You can add type names to uh, things. In particular, you can add type names to uh, primitives. So you might have a primitive type gallon, which is of type float. So gallon colon float. So it declares a gallon as type as a float. Now it's nominally typed, and you can only pass gallons into everywhere people who expect a gallon. Um, and that will prevent you from mixing up your gallons and your miles, for instance. There's structures. They're anonymous structures. In fact, all structure definitions are anonymous. Um, and, and structure types are all anonymous. The definitions are basically a C structure without the struct name or a Java inner class definition. It's basically a list of fields whose types are all get inferred. To give the structure a name, you assign it to a variable. It's just another first class value. You can assign a type of a structure type to a variable, and you can assign a, a constant structure to a variable, both. To make it a type, you put a colon in front, and then it's only types and not values in the description for the, for the structure. Type variables are pretty much like C and C++ type vars. They're a shortcut for a type description. They can be used anywhere. A basic primitive type can be used. To make a structure constant, an anonymous structure constant, you simply open curly and begin listing fields that are assigned values, except that open curly is ambiguous with 
starting a function. So you have to use at curly. I might change the exact token that starts a structure constant. Um, but then within the structure constant, you just name a field and assign it some value. Uh, I'm repeating for every field in the structure and close the close curly and you have it. And you can now uh, pass it into a function, assign it to a variable and do all the things you can do with a structure to it. It is a structure. So basically all structures are anonymous and they can be assigned to variables. All structure types are also anonymous and they can be assigned to type variables. And there's no definition, no difference between type variables and variables except what they got assigned. Um, functions, similar to structs, all functions are anonymous, but you can assign them to a variable and that basically gives a name to the variable. Um, the assignment is just a normal assignment, you know, functions are first class, citizens are just a type, like uh, just a value like 1.5 and pi. Um, and since the structure, since all types are inferred, function parameters don't have to be typed. So, right, so to make a function, you write an open curly brace, a list of parameters, and an arrow, and then the function body. The last expression is the return value. Types can be added anywhere you like to make it you know, more understandable. You can put types on the parameters. You can put types on the last expression, which is the return value. You can put a type on the function as a whole. After the end of the closed curly, you can put a type on the variable that's getting assigned to the function value anywhere you like. That's, that's a fun part of it. Short, simple functions you're just going to pass somewhere, don't have to be typed at all. But if you need for want for program clarity purposes to well describe the type of something, you can. What else? Uh, if statements, right? No, no, if and else. So there's trinaries, there's predicate question, true expression, colon, false expression. Pointers and non-pointers have a truthiness. And so you don't have to explicitly convert predicate values to Booleans like you do in Java. As you see, I think got that right. Uh, Python mostly gets it right. Java gets it wrong. I think Python gets a little aggressive about what's truthy. I'll claim that null strings are false, but empty strings are true. And we could argue either way on that one. Pointer types are um, null and not null. It's in the typing system, similar to Kotlin. Um, I guess a bunch of people do that now. Uh, no null dereferences, right? At least not at this time. So you have to prove to the typer that things are not null before you can dereference a pointer. You load through a reference. Um, and that just put a question mark at the end of a pointer type to declare it to be nullable. And if that happens, you know, you'll have to prove to the typer it's not null, which you do with a null tet. Uh, and some sort of error handling. And then not normal, you know, propagates well through the typer. So mostly you don't have to do that very often. There's simple function overloading, um, as long as all type signatures are compatible, which means no ambiguity. ambiguity um, it's obvious which one you're gonna call, right? Then you can have as many overloads as you like. Right now, things like, you know, primitive add has an int, an int, or a float, float variant. And those both boil down to the machine code instruction for integer add or floating point add, or string plus string for doing string append and the like. Type inference just picks out the correct one. There's no, there's no subtyping right now um, implemented, although, you know, I haven't decided what to do. I, I like single inheritance subtyping. So I'm probably gonna go down that route. Um, and then for interfaces, I'm using this duck typing notion, which I like. It's going to, I mean, I think that's the right answer for that one. Back to primitives, there's infix and prefix functions. And the functions are for the primitives are uh, mostly typed in the language the way everything else is done, um, except that they have implementations directly down to machine code and the compiler understands them. Otherwise, they're basically a first class citizen 
So you can take the add operator and pass it around and, and apply it like a function at any point in time. Uh, you can make your own user operators using all operator syntax you want. The, uh, mostly if you're, you know, if you're not a Java, Java variable name, all of the leftover combinations of weird ass token characters are available to be used for user operators. Until you can write your own operator syntax and you can extend the existing add, for instance, to take things like complex and complex or point and point or whatever. What else? All assignments currently are final. That is, you only get to write to a variable once. And I'm going to loosen it, um, but at the moment it means everything's assigned once, which is great for concurrency and great for sort of functional style programming and sort of lousy for sort of imperative programming. So I'm going to have a non-final assignment syntax. Variables declared this way can be non-finally assigned any number of times up until a final assignment and then thereafter they're constant. That gives you a path forward for initializing complicated circular recursive structures um, where you need to have some temporary things in place before you can close the structure down and declare it final. And it will be known final on the typing system and that will be part of the you know requirement for heading into, heading into different kind of concurrency uses. Concurrency, um, the thing that I did that I liked looked a whole lot, well, sort of kind of like actors or continuations somewhere between the two. We would, this was H2O style, but it didn't have any compiler or language support, so you had to hand roll it. So it was like very boilerplate heavy and you know, error prone for being boilerplate heavy without compiler support. So it's basically, you could launch any number of things to be run in parallel, and you had a, an object or a token, a gather point that you could pile on literally millions or billions of launched parallel executions with good efficiency. So we would, we would launch millions and billions of parallel independent calcul calculations with extremely low overhead, you know, it was sort of, it was a Dudley uh, uh, fork join model, but really it was basically, I would say green threads or user mode threads. There was heavyweight OS threads that would pick up a tiny Java object that had the statement of work to do. And the statement of work could be really small and still be efficient. So as long as you were in the tens to, say, hundreds to thousands of nanoseconds, sub-microsecond easily with okay still, Right, so, so the overhead for a threaded object, for a, a parallel object, has a minimum lower bound that you know, has to be big enough. And we could get it down below the microsecond and still be efficient. So that was a very useful technology to let you spawn a billion things and then gather a billion things when you wanted to. And they didn't they could be spawned and, and gathered in sort of any order. Uh, including sort of recursive parallel spawning and recursive parallel gathering. So it was very, you know, useful way to give you a lot of flexibility in how you wrote your, your parallelism. Um, and it worked, you know, distributed as well. So around the cluster, um, I, you know, we would do parallel independent operations uh, all over the place and gather them. So what else? The other thing that went around here is the notion of atomicity. If most variables are by default immutable and data structures are, uh, you know, immutable or known mutable, but there's a, you had to ask for it, then it probably makes sense to look again at software transactional memory. I know the closure folks went down this path. I looked at software and hardware transactional memory for quite a few years, and the answer was that if you had to software transact through everything, and the hardware transactions had a different fail, but it definitely had a fail, it was too inefficient and too difficult to make it work well without sort of careful tuning. Whereas the locks at least were in your face about what the hot locks were and you could go break the locks with explicitly carefully parallel, whereas the STMs were always 
magically efficient or magically inefficient. And if they're inefficient, you couldn't tell what the fuck was going on. And it was difficult to make it efficient again. So there's a theory that says that there's very few mutable variables that I can make it efficient pretty much all the time. And so maybe I might explore that one again. So, that, you know, the, the, the notion of what it is to be atomic is still up in the air. There's still a notion of locks, which is basically transactions, except there is a, an implied implicit uh, uh, execution model, which is, you know, first come, first serve, and you blow through the lock and you're done, and the next guy takes the lock. It works. It's, it's what Java's been using forever and a day. There may be better things in life. So what did I miss here out of all of the stuff I talked through? Malloc and free probably don't happen or happen only if you ask for unsafe allocations. I mentioned I don't have inheritance yet, but that's sort of in the works, and that'll turn into some sort of dispatch mechanism. What else? Reflection, I'm going to bake it into the language from the get-go, so it's a natural way to uh, query yourself, but you can't make new types yourself this way, but we'll get there. We'll do it right now. So, so then there, there's a val. So there's a REPL. So there's runtime evaluation, if you will. Um, there's an eval call. The eval call takes a string, and, and if it types, you get back a function you can execute. And if it fails to type, you get back an error message out of the function. So you can run evals anywhere, and they are type safe. And anything you can put in eval, you can run an eval. Uh, I haven't figured out if eval is going to take an environment, the current one, so or not. Probably a version that's the or not version. In order to let you write uh, arbitrary strings that you are unsafe about without having people be able to query your own state by doing you know string attacks in, uh, via an eval. Okay, what else? Um, for loops. Yeah, imperative versus map. So there'll be a for loop because you know people know how to code it and and have to deal with it. Um, with, you know, good, useful standard syntax. Um, I like the Python iterator syntax, so it's probably going to head down that path. But the, the main thing here is going to be there's a bulk operator by default for everything. So map over, you know, array. Linked list, by the way, is just a poor man's collection in terms of it's poor in the sense of... Um, it's inefficient. So it's easy to write various kinds of recursive algorithms. And I know there's a functional community that loves them. So they'll be there, but they're not going to have any special language support. They're pretty damn trivial to write without special language support. Uh, but arrays can handle things into the billions efficiently and parallel uh, sort of automatically and easily parallelizable. So collections of things beyond, you know, 10 or 100 probably should be an array style syntax instead of in a linked list style. And maybe I'll just have a bulk syntax and I won't tell you what it is implemented under the hood, but you can damn well bet it'll be an array-like thing. In the case of very, very large arrays, you need to get into array-lits kind of notions, especially if they have to be distributed by default. So there's some notion there, but there'll be in a bulk, bulk operators. First class function, so it's just a map call. You know, it's a collection.map of function, which is anonymous, inline, whatever. Um, and I can probably even shorten that syntax down some more specifically for collections because people will just do stuff with collections all the time. That's kind of a common thing and you want that syntax to be light and easy. For loops for when you declare that you want to have a serial execution model. That is, you want to do this, then this, then this, then this, and they sort of by default limit your parallel execution. And sometimes that's okay and sometimes that's exactly what you want uh, or it's required by the language. You know, so it's a while loop, if you will. So I'll probably use the forward, uh, the for uh, as a keyword for parallel execution hasn't haven't decided that yet since I have no keywords right now. I'm kind of liking that feel. But there'll be something to do with parallel execution. There'll be something to do with serial execution. The parallel one will be 
by default, easy one to write. Because all in all, in this kind of domain, I want you to be able to write the code you normally write for everyday stuff, looks good, types well, and is also efficiently executable. You don't, by default, accidentally write code that can't be made to go fast. That's, that's a main goal. For instance, uh, auto-boxing. So right now, uh, I do full type referencing, and then as needed, under the hood, I clone functions and data structures to give primitives exactly a primitive thing. So there's no boxing done around primitives unless you are going to force into a collection things of different kinds of primitives and mixing primitives and, and garbage collector pointers. And in that domain, you'll get a type error and then you can ask for a variation of a collection that will support boxed primitives. And that will auto box then by default, but only on this one collection that you've asked for. So there's gonna be some way you're gonna ask for auto boxing, but you have to ask for it. But the ask should be light and easy for people who badly want it. But if I just make a hash table and I just use completely generic key and value, um, and I, I happen to key my hash table on ints, and the values are strings, or it's strings returning ints, or whatever, I'll get a, under the hood, a clone variation that's got primitives where the primitives go. Um, and so you'll get, you know, primitive math. So if you have an array that's done in a style where, I'm sorry, we're doing a hash table whose array mixes keys and values in the same structure, then if you want to key it by ints, but the values happen to be strings, you're going to have to mix primitive ints and strings in the same array, and that will blow out an error and say, hey, you have to box. Whereas if your hash table implementation keeps keys and values in separate arrays, then the array of keys might be an array of primitive ints, for instance. And the array of values might be an array of strings, for instance. So th there's, a, there's a things to do there. That's another work in progress. Mostly now you'll get a funny, you know, mixing pointers and non-pointer error at a funny place in the typing system when that happens. But I need to get to a spot where I give you a more polite error. The, the cloning for primitive types does happen right now. That's part of the operator overloading resolution. You know, you can put any of these operators in any set of expressions and types. And as I see primitives and I type the system, I will uh, you know, clone code chunks around in order to get primitive types in the right places. And it's all just under the hood. It's part of the language implementation. Um, but it lets you know that you can expect primitive math where you're using primitives. And for the same notion, you know, primitives have a hash function because if they're strongly typed, I know what the hash of an int is. It's the int value itself, right? I know what the hash for float is and so on and so forth. I don't have to have a boxed int in order to get like a hash code out of it. Uh, okay, well, you know, I, I've rambled on for a long time. I, there's lots of other fun stuff floating around in my head and lots of implementation bits are still, you know, works in progress. Nonetheless, if you're interested in like poking at this, then reach me out, reach out to me on Twitter and talk to me about, you know, language implementation design goals. Like what should it look like? Like, for instance, I didn't talk about modules. Um, exceptions, ooh, God, I should also talk about exceptions. Back and forth and back and forth on it. I think the, the default answer is you can have uh, tuple returns sort of by the language naturally and functions can return a value and they can return an exceptional value. And what it really means is you're looking for a shortcut technology, you know, exceptions throw and try catch is a shortcut technology that says, I expect that when I throw an exception, I'm going to unwind and test every, every return, tests the returned thing, and if it's an exception, it immediately returns again, is the effective semantics. So I'm probably gonna head down that path where if you have an exception, you don't get a stack trace, you get a throw to the next 
our layer, unless you ask for stack trace, and then, then you can have a stack trace. Or if no one's going to catch it and it rolls all the way out, you'll get the stack trace as it rolls all the way out. But the stack trace will be built incrementally as you roll out. How about that? So anyhow, I've rambled on a lot. Like I said, there's lots of missing bits I haven't thought my head around, and I'm still implementing you know, fun things to do with uh, recursive types, although that's sort of winding down. I'm going to have you know well-typed typing systems with full recursive types. Uh, here before long. You can find all this stuff on my GitHub account, cliff click, all one word, slash AA. It's a language with a, you know, in search of a name, fine. And, you know, I have other language ramblings floating around in uh, my podcast, my blogs. You can go look at uh, cliffc.org slash blog and, you know, rocket, uh, real, realtime.com uh, for my school. And uh, gosh, I don't know. May, uh, you know, may all your languages be well designed. Thanks. Bye-bye.